Good morning, Redemption family. Thank you for joining us again for Gather Time. My name is Dan, and as usual, I have a couple of announcements for you, so let's get into it. Have you been following us on Facebook or Instagram? If you haven't, you should. Those who are following us on social media are already in the know that we have some Redemption merch on sale at the welcome desk that we're trying to get rid of. All items right now are buy one, get one free. But here's the thing, merchandise is limited. So stop by today and grab a great deal before they're gone. Next, one of our first steps in getting connected here at Redemption is to attend step one. Join us next Sunday after second service. Step one is an enjoyable event where you will be introduced to some of the leadership here at Redemption. We will enjoy some fantastic food, tell you a little bit about ourselves, answer any questions you may have, and help point you on a path of quality discipleship. This event is free, but we do ask that you would register to let us know you're coming and to make sure that we have enough food for those attending. Register at rbclondon.ca slash next steps today before you forget. Registration closes on Tuesday. What's 55 days away? That's right, it's Christmas. Are you pumped? You should be because we get to celebrate the birth of our Savior together. Our staff and elders are busy making plans for these services, so get your calendars out and prepare to write this information down as you may be wondering what the services will look like this year. Well, we're excited to announce that we're holding three services on Friday, December 24th, Christmas Eve. One is at 2 p.m., one at 4 p.m., and one at 6 p.m. So that's the Friday. On Sunday, December 26th, which is Boxing Day, we'll be having one service at 10 a.m. And then on January 2nd, we'll be back to what everyone knows and loves, our normal two services at 9 and 11.15 a.m. Well, that's all I have for you today. If you missed anything that was mentioned, just rewind like 20 seconds. And if you're watching in person, come and see me at the welcome desk after service. Hope you have a wonderful week. Stay warm. and We'll see you next Sunday. Well, welcome again to Gather Time. Why don't we all stand up together as we praise our Lord and Savior. Join with the earth and I'll give my praise. 
Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadow, and you win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. An almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadow.
has died my soul to save, and my lips shall still repeat that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. going to be taking communion together, and I'll lead us in that in a few moments. If you don't have the elements, if you didn't get them on the way in, there'll be people in the aisles just to wave at them and they'll serve you. And if you'd like, uh, you can peel the top cellophane layer to get access to the wafer when we get to that point. Communion is for Christians, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is a time for believers to remember that God the Father through God the Son, strengthened by God the Spirit, once and for all, paid for all our sin by his death on the cross. It's a time to prayerfully and carefully examine our hearts and repent of any unconfessed sin in our lives. For anyone here this morning or watching online uh, who's not a Christ follower, we ask that you not participate in taking the elements. Rather, we'd ask you to consider the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, 15 when he said, but who do you say that I am? My prayer is that today you would respond as Peter did in the next verse when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that today would be the day of your salvation. I'm going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment together, quietly, for reflection, to remember, to confess our sin, and to thank God for his saving work in our lives. And then I'll lead us in prayer after this moment.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to remember the finished work of your Son on the cross. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And for those of us who are in Christ, we, we know that experientially, we know that cognitively, we believe it in our hearts because you've revealed it to us and we've staked our lives on it. And Father, as your redeemed ones this morning, we are thankful that you see us as having the righteousness of Christ because of his completed work on the cross. And yet we still sin. Day by day, we struggle. And so here we have this beautiful moment this morning again to confess our sin to you in faith, knowing that you forgive us. God, we remember that Jesus was broken for us, that he was crucified on a cross. His body was broken, his blood was shed. And we will never fully comprehend the cost of that. We'll never fully understand that. And yet, by your sovereign purposes, those of us in Christ, we are recipients of your grace that you have applied your righteousness now to us as Christ paid in full for our sin, for my sin. And we can be mindful of that in this moment and we know it's true for all eternity. And so, Father, we rejoice in knowing that you forgive us we take time to remember it now, we say thank you. Thank you for the hope of heaven. You are coming back. Jesus told us in Revelation, surely I am coming soon, to which those of us in Christ say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. In this act of eating the wafer and drinking the juice, we remember and proclaim our Lord's death on the cross and all that it represents for us. And we remember and proclaim that he will return. Please join me in taking the wafer.
to wake as a child. He became like the least of us. Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, the Roaring Lion. Oh, be still and behold.
be people that press into the words that we find in scripture, Lord. May we be people that apply it to our lives, Lord. Thank you for your grace. God, may we be people that just apply it. Give us open hearts, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? Good morning, Redemption Bible Chapel. It is good, it is great to be back with you. What day is it today? Don't you say Halloween. Don't say it. It's Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517 is the date that is traditionally given to the start of the Protestant Reformation. It didn't actually begin in 1517. It predates that year at the Council of Constance. Some facts you never wanted to know, but here they are. At the Council of Constance in 1414, the Pope condemned two priests to be burned. One of them was already dead. His name was John Wycliffe, professor at Oxford University, and 150 years before that council, he was already preaching Reformation doctrine, and the Pope condemned him at the Council of Constance. They exhumed his remains, burned them, and then scattered his ashes in the River Swift in England. The other priest was alive. His name was John Huss professor at Charles University in Prague, and he too was preaching Reformation doctrine. He was promised safe passage to the Council of Constance to give an account for his heretical teaching. He was found guilty. He refused to recant. He was condemned. His promise of safe passage was revoked, and he was taken outside and burned at the stake. But it's 1517. It's October 31st, 1517, and it stands out as a pivotal moment because it was on that day that an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther posted, nailed, tacked a piece of parchment to the main church door in the city of Wittenberg. And on that parchment, he had penned 95 theses propositions, statements, arguments that he was inviting his fellow clergy and scholarly community to engage in debate and discussion. What had brought him to this point? Very simple. Years earlier, as an Augustinian monk, he had devoted himself to a life of penance. He had devoted himself to an austere existence, very ascetic practice, seeking to earn his salvation, troubled by his sin, a colleague encouraged him, recommended to him that bastion of truth, Paul's epistle to the Romans. And Luther began to read Romans, study it. He got as far as Romans 1.17, for in it, in the gospel, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. He was converted on the spot. Came to an understanding of what it means to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was a university professor teaching his classes daily. On one particular day, he entered the classroom. Half of his students were missing. He asked one of the students present, where is everyone? And he was dismayed by the response. They're out purchasing indulgences. Johann Tetzel was passing through town. And at the Roman Catholic Church, an indulgence was simply a payment you would make for the forgiveness of sins. Because the belief was that Mary and the saints, by living a holy life, had accumulated grace and holiness beyond what they required. And this grace and mercy and holiness was deposited in this great treasury chest in heaven above. And the Pope alone had the authority to dispense this grace and mercy to whomever he pleased upon financial payment. Have you seen the Basilica in Rome? That's how it was built, on the backs of peasants purchasing indulgences. You could buy one of these indulgences then to secure forgiveness for sins you had committed over the past year, perhaps. Or you could purchase this indulgence, which is what I think many of Luther's students were doing, uh, anticipating the sins you were planning to commit in the year coming. Or you could purchase this indulgence to help that poor relative, your cousin, mother perhaps, grandfather, who was languishing in torment and purgatory in order to acquire and secure their soon release from the flames of torment. Luther went apoplectic. There's no other word for it. Lost his mind. And just the marked contrast between the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and this understanding of the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Catholic Church had obscured from all view the Lord Jesus Christ. He was hidden behind indulgences, saints, images, pilgrimages, and everything else. And so Luther took this parchment, penned these 95 theses, tacked them to the church door in Wittenberg, and he was just asking his fellow scholars and clergymen to get together over a meal to debate these things. He had absolutely no idea that it would be the spark that would ignite the Protestant Reformation. It spread like wildfire across Europe. It altered the entire course of Western civilization. And we still feel the effects of the Protestant Reformation around the world today. So happy Reformation Day. Here we are 504 years later, and praise God, I can stand up here in front of you and say, please turn with me in God's Word to Matthew chapter 18 as we stand upon sola scriptura, the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God, and I seek to point you to the sole sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Matthew 18. As you're turning there, I want to draw your attention briefly to a hymn. Some of you might be familiar with it, some of you perhaps not. It was penned by a woman named Catherine 
Kelly, early 1900s, I believe. I'm not going to give you the hymn in its entirety, just a couple of stanzas. And as I read these stanzas, I want you to notice a definite progression, progression in her thinking, in her celebration. Here they are. O wonder of all wonders, that through your death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Bend me, yea, break me down, until I own you conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. There is a progression in thought. This is a paradigm I want us to understand. I want it to be securely fastened in our thinking because it becomes pivotal to our interpretation of our text in Matthew chapter 18. In this progression, we begin with the authors, the hymn writers, amazement. She's amazed by God's forgiveness. A wonder of all wonders that through your death for me, my open sins, my secret sins can all forgiven be. My open sins, sins of adultery, sins of immorality, sins of angry outburst and the losing of one's temper, malicious words, hurtful comments, my open sins, oh, my secret sins of greed and lust, murmuring, grumbling, discontentment, malice, spite, Oh, amazed by God's forgiveness, wonder of all wonders, that through your death for me, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice upon Calvary's cross, my open sins, my secret sins can all forgiven be. There's a progression because you see she is amazed by God's forgiveness. It leads her to a prayer whereby she is melted by God's forgiveness. Melt my heart. O Savior, bend me and break me down. In other words, as, as, I, as I grow in my understanding, my appreciation of your forgiveness and my wonder of what you have forgiven me, and as I stand in amazement before your grace, melt my heart. It's the only reasonable response. Meekness, humility, poverty of spirit, as I considered your, your, your mountain of mercy, which covers my multitude of sins. Oh, a progression in my experience, amazed by your forgiveness, melted by your forgiveness, and then it culminates in what? Changed by God's forgiveness. And the last stanza, the last phrase in the final stanza, until I own you, conqueror. Till I acknowledge you as conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Do you see the progression in her thinking and celebration of utmost importance? Amazed by God's forgiveness, where there is truly an appreciation of what God has forgiven me, there will be wonder, astonishment, and amazement. That will necessarily lead to what? A melting of the heart 
as I consider God's forgiveness of me. And that cultivation then of meekness in my walk before Him. And that will naturally progress to what? A change in behavior. So let me ask you, have you got the paradigm? You got it? You're ready for our text in Matthew chapter 18. Follow along as I begin reading then in the 15th verse. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. To begin with, very important. Narrow in on a phrase. We find this phrase twice. Firstly, verse 15. If your brother sins against you. We find it again in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? Evidently, what is Christ's main theme in this passage? He is explaining to us what we are to do, how we are to respond when a brother, a sister sins against us. And so you are in business with a lifelong friend, a fellow believer. The nature of the business is unimportant. But there you are, two professing believers, good friends, and you are in business together. 
Four years in, your business undergoes an external audit. And the auditor, to your dismay, discovers that there are large sums of money missing. And he traces those sums of money to your business partner's personal bank account. You have been sinned against. What will you do? Are you with me? Another scenario, completely different. You're out for a walk with a friend from church, fellow believer, and you're in the park, you're in the woods, just enjoying God's good creation. And as you stroll along, your friend becomes a little sheepish, starts sort of staring at the ground. You ask what's wrong, and she shares with you, well, I, I just want to bring to your attention something I heard from someone else at church, another professing believer, uh, something uh, she said about you, and I want you to be aware of it. And what she proceeds to share concerning you is baseless, completely untrue. It is hurtful, spiteful, it is malicious is what it is. It's going to ruin your reputation. You have been sinned against. What will you do? That is the question before us. And what the Lord Jesus does then in our text is he answers this question. And I want to share his answer with you by way of five words of counsel. What do you do when a brother sins against you? Have you got all that? You understand the main theme of the text? You understand the question before us? You understand very clearly what the Lord Jesus' objective is, the subject matter. And so now five words of counsel that I pray, I trust, will communicate to you what the Spirit of God is speaking to us by means of the Word of God this day. Here is the first word of counsel. Number one, remember, remember, please, that it is your glory to overlook an offense. Look at our phrase again in the 15th verse. If your brother sins against you. Look again at the phrase in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? The Lord Jesus is describing something very specific. He is building a hedge, if you like. The scenario he is envisioning is when we are indeed sinned against. In other words, he is not describing every offense that we experience in life. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 19 verse 11 is far more applicable when it comes to offenses. It is your glory. It is your honor to overlook an offense. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm going to hit you right between the eyes. You may not appreciate hearing this, but here it is. You are quirky. You are, my friend, and I know that why it takes one to know one. I too am quirky. Do you know what that means? If we spend enough time together, invariably, do you know what we're going to end up doing? We're going to end up offending one another. Someplace, sometime, somehow. We have very different backgrounds. We have very different life experiences, very different perspectives on things, very different personalities, very different ways of communicating. And if you do life together, 
and spend enough time in one another's presence, here is an undeniable reality. You will end up offending me in some way, and I am well aware that I will end up offending you. Guess what? It is our glory to overlook an offense. And so, Susan, out there on the stairwell earlier when you were coming in, up the stairs you come from the parking lot, and Susan's on her way down, and you give her a joyful, loving good morning, and she blows by you and just kind of grumbles something. You're offended. What are you going to do? Well, Matthew 18, I've been sinned against. No, you haven't. Settle down. <laughs> Time to put the big boy pants on. You have not been sinned against. You've been offended. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things and hope all things. And you cut Susan a little slack. And you give her the benefit of the doubt. Four kids, two of them were up all night. Who knows? Bad news, email, phone call that morning, that morning. You have no idea. You give her the benefit of the doubt. If it goes on, then yes, maybe a kind word at the right moment, just suggesting, you know, sometimes we're a little gruff in how we deal with one another. Fine. But that is not what the Lord Jesus is dealing with in this text. He's referring, he's describing to that situation when we have been sinned against. This action violates God's Word. It tarnishes God's honor, and it harms God's people. So let's be clear on what Christ is referring to and to what He is not referring to. That is my first word of counsel. Here is word of counsel number two. Talk to the person who has sinned against you. When it is clear someone has sinned against you, you go and talk to him. Go and talk to her. Where do I get that? It's right there in the 15th verse. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Let me add to that. As you go, make sure you guard your words tongue of yours. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Show kindness. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another. Oh, whatever you do, mortify anger. Be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Pursue peace. peace. Be anxious to pursue peace. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 14, 19. And finally, demonstrate humility. Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we are struggling with pride, we will not heed this word of counsel. We won't. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If we are wrestling with pride, we will not do that. One manifestation of pride is a superiority complex. We think we're better than everyone else. And we just love those opportunities which give us an opportunity to reinforce our self-delusion. And so when sinned against, if we're wrestling with a superiority complex, we'll seize the opportunity to lord over others. Another manifestation of pride is an inferiority complex. 
whereby we are so preoccupied with what other, others think of us. And the idea of speaking to them and confronting them, oh, it just turns us into a, a nervous wreck. And so we will avoid. We might seek other ways to communicate a message to them subtly, but we'll never go and speak to them face to face. Oh, here is Christ's word of counsel. Here is Christ's command. You are to talk to the person who has sinned against you, and you are to do so in a Christ-honoring way, making it a gospel moment whereby, yes, as we go and we might have to say difficult things, we say so lo them lovingly. We say them patiently. We say them seeking to reflect the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my third word of counsel as it emerges from our verses. Number three, rebuke the person if he is obstinate. The Lord Jesus doesn't use the word stubborn here in Matthew 18, but he most certainly uses it in the parallel text in Luke 17. And there he says, if your, son or, if your brother sins against you, refuses to repent, in other words, if he is obstinate, you are to rebuke him. You are to correct him. You are to challenge him. You are to bring to his knowledge, if he's in denial, what has happened. And you are to demonstrate for, to him just how inconsistent his behavior, what he has done, is in light of the Word of God. They're, 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 if, they, if, they, if they listen to you, uh, you've won your brother, says the Lord Jesus. That's marvelous. But if your brother, if your sister refuses to heed what you're saying, refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing, what's the next step? The Lord Jesus tells us in our passage. What's the next step? You're to involve others. You're to go and find one or two others who have some knowledge of the situation Witnesses, for lack of a better word. And you're now to go back to that brother and you're to go over everything again that has happened. Prayerfully seeking, prayerfully hoping and desiring that they come to an acknowledgement and awareness of their sin and confess it. If they don't, what do you do then? It's time to visit with the elders of the church. And it's time for the entire church to confront that individual and rebuke that individual. And if the obstinacy continues, what is the final recourse that is left to you? What is the final recourse that is left to the church? That man, that woman is to be treated as a Gentile, as a tax collector. What does the Lord Jesus mean by that? Simply this, that individual is now to be treated as an unbeliever. Because you see, you see, the main issue is no longer the sin he or she has committed against you. It's actually no longer the issue. What's the issue? His hardness of heart. His absolute obstinacy before the church. His unwillingness to be moved by his brothers and sisters who have come to him with one voice saying, This is wrong. You need to get it together. And an unwillingness, an unwillingness to accept that. And an unwillingness to confess that reveals, leaves us with only one conclusion. What is it? We're actually dealing with an unbeliever. We're actually dealing with an unregenerate person. Because you see, this is a means of grace. And if that person were regenerate, that man, that woman would have responded somewhere along the line. 
When confronted by the people of God, when confronted by the word of God, the spirit of God speaking through these means, at some point there would have been brokenness. There would have been self-awareness. There would have been acknowledgement. There would have been confession. And the fact that this individual can persist in such hardness of heart and open obstinacy, even before the testimony of the entire church, you have but one recourse left to you. You are to now view that person as an evangelistic project. No longer treat him as a brother or as a sister. Oh, we are to rebuke those who are obstinate. Obstinacy, hardness of heart, unwillingness to listen to the church. And the Lord Jesus brings us to that dreadful culmination, what we call excommunication. Not in a desire to be belligerent, Certainly not with any desire to be unkind. Certainly not seeking to be vindictive. But out of concern for that soul. Because that individual is demonstrating he or she is not what they claim to be. And are therefore to be dealt with accordingly. Yes, compassionately. Yes, lovingly. But my friends, we stand on the isthmus between two eternities, heaven and hell. Things are not to be trifled with. We're dealing with an individual who for all intents and purposes has demonstrated they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, from that moment, they are to be dealt with accordingly. That is the third word of counsel. The fourth word of counsel is this. Forgive the person if he is penitent. And so you go to that person as an individual or perhaps it progresses to where you need to take one or two others. Perhaps it even progresses to the entire witness of the church. But somewhere, somewhere in that process, the light goes on. And the individual acknowledges their wrongdoing, their sin against you. Openly acknowledges it, confesses it. The Lord Jesus, again, here in this text, does not use the word repent. But he does in Luke 17. He makes it most clear that if he repents, if she repents... You are to forgive him. And my friends, this is where we head into the depths of confusion in our day. Because what does it mean to forgive? If I were to hand out a piece of paper and pencil to all of you, and you were just to jot down a few words briefly, your definition, understanding of forgiveness, I don't doubt we would come up with dozens and dozens of answers and responses. There's a lot of confusion in our day as to what it means to forgive. It stems from the fact that we use the word, us, right now, today, 2021, we use the word forgiveness in three ways. And that's fine as long as we understand what we're saying in each case. At times, we use the word forgiveness to forgive in reference to changing an emotion. You understanding that? So we will say, well, to forgive means you put away malice, right? You, you, don't, you, you mortify resentment. You mortify bitterness. And so there has to be this change in your emotional condition. And when you do that towards the individual who has sinned against you, well, that is forgiveness. And that's how we use the word today. Is everyone clear on that? And that's fine. But here's what we need to understand. The Bible never uses the word forgiveness in that sense. 
In Scripture, the word forgive never means to experience an emotional change. It's true. In Scripture, we are not to sin against those who sin against us. We are not to return evil with evil. We are to mortify, put to death bitterness and resentment and anger and malice and all of those things. The Bible tells us to do that. We're all in agreement. And if we want to call that forgiveness, fine. But please, please, please be clear. The Bible never uses the word forgive to describe a change in emotion. The second way we use the word forgive is this. It is to pay a debt. Remove a debt. Erase a debt. The Bible does use it in this sense on occasion. An instance, our text, the parable the Lord Jesus tells. There's a master, servant one, servant two. Servant one owes his master 10,000 talents. What is that? It is a debt. Servant two owes servant one a hundred denarii. What is that? A debt. The master forgives servant one his debt, meaning what? He erases it. He removes it. And so we do find the word forgive on occasion in Scripture used in that sense. I hope we're clear on that. But the third way we use the word forgive which is how the word is most often used, employed in Scripture, is this. To forgive is to restore a relationship. Forgiveness is reconciliation. And Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4, verse 32, he exhorts us to forgive one another. He doesn't end there. What does he say? Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. What does that mean? It means that God's forgiveness of us is the paradigm we follow when it comes to forgiving one another. It leads to an obvious question. How does God forgive? I've summed it up in five statements. Here it is. Please listen to these very carefully. Number one, God is willing to forgive everyone. Oh, praise God. He is willing to forgive everyone. Statement number two. God offers forgiveness to everyone. Statement number three. God's offer of forgiveness is based on His satisfied justice. It is rooted in the cross. He offers forgiveness for one reason, one reason alone. It is because he has displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, his son, Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross has borne sin. He has been punished for sin. And he has therefore satisfied the offended justice of God. The fourth statement is this, God's offer is conditional on our repentance. We are to believe and repent for the forgiveness of sins. That means, fifthly, that forgiveness through repentance produces reconciliation. 
Do you know what all of that means? I'm going I'm to blow up a myth here, perhaps for some of us. It means the following. God's forgiveness is not unconditional. That's a myth. God's forgiveness is conditional. It is conditional on two things. The death of His Son, Jesus Christ, upon Calvary's cross, and you better be in Him through faith and repentance of our sin. And because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, whereby He paid the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross, and upon our repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, God forgives us our sins. It is conditional. You are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Meaning what? Biblical forgiveness is simply this. When my brother has sinned against me, I have gone and I have spoken to him. And he said, I was blind to that. I did not see that. That is horrific. And he confesses it and he repents. Because there is repentance, there is restoration and reconciliation in the relationship. But please get this. Some of you are going to trip over this. If there is no repentance, guess what? In the biblical sense of the word, there can be no forgiveness. It's out of your hands. We cannot forgive someone. The restoration of a relationship, if that person has not repented. God does not forgive anyone who hasn't repented. When it comes to God's forgiveness about us, it's not about him changing his emotions and the way he feels about us. It is because his justice has been satisfied. And we've repented and turned from our sin. And we are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Oh, this dispels so many myths that are so prevalent in our day. Forgiveness, true biblical forgiveness, doesn't mean we act like nothing happened. Oh, sister, you just need to forgive and pretend nothing ever happened. That's not biblical forgiveness. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. Biblical forgiveness doesn't mean we no longer feel the pain. Just get over it and stiff up her lip, old man. Biblical forgiveness doesn't mean we don't pursue justice. Biblical forgiveness does not mean we become a doormat. Biblical forgiveness does not mean we don't set boundaries. You need an example to make this come alive. So here it is. A couple, 20 years ago, there they are in their home, believers. Across the street, another couple, professing believers. On one day, the husband, the couple across the street, committed an indecent act that involved the wife of the first couple, all right? She shares this with her husband. They've been sinned against. What should they do? Pretend it never happened? Just change your feelings about it? Sweep it under the carpet? What should they do? Well, that young man put Matthew 18 into practice. He went and spoke with that man. So this is what you've done. And he rebuked him. And the man acknowledged it and confessed it and repented. And therefore, there was what in the relationship? A measure of restoration. But do you know what the first young man then went and did? He then went and had a visit with the pastor of the church where this other man was a member. It wasn't gossip. 
He wasn't seeking to malign him. What was he seeking to do? This fellow has a problem. There's an issue here. He needs help. It needs to be addressed. That man then went to the home of another neighbor because there were several young women in that home. And he's thinking what? We need some hedges here. We need some fences. This dad needs to be made a known where so that he is eyes wide open as to what has happened and he can protect his own family if need be. It's not malicious. It's not gossip. It's not a lack of forgiveness. It's called good common sense. And then what did that man do? He then went down to the OPP precinct and he reported it. Why? To be malicious, vindictive, revenge? No. Why? A law had been broken. A law of this country. A law of this land. We are not above the law. And he reported it as a crime. And the OPP investigated and charges were laid. And then that young man went back to his neighbor, shared with him everything he'd done, and said, and, and, and this is the other thing. You can come over to visit on my property, but never step foot on my property unless I'm there, unless I'm home. That was biblical forgiveness. The restoration of a relationship, but the restoration of the relationship does not mean we throw biblical wisdom, good sense out the window. It does not mean there is no justice. It does not mean what many of us have come to think it means. We just simply pretend like it didn't happen, sweep it under the blanket, and we inform that young woman, oh, just get on with your life. You just need to forgive him. And we do so much damage. No, my friends, biblical forgiveness. If there is no repentance, there is no such thing as true biblical forgiveness. Yes, Again, what we often call forgiveness, mortify the anger, that's true, before the cross of Christ. Yes, mortify that desire for revenge before the cross of Christ. Yes, dispel that spirit of bitterness and malice and everything else. Yes, and, and you're going to need to live in the shadow of the cross to do that. And you're going to have to behold the deep furrows on the back of the Lord Jesus. And understand what he has gone through for you to purchase you. And understand your identity in the Lord Jesus. And look to him, he who was so meek in the face of abuse and everything else. And you're going to have to cry out to him to help you to do that. That's true. It's not biblical forgiveness. Don't confuse it with forgiveness. We can call it that if we want to. But real forgiveness is the restoration of a relationship. It's reconciliation. And there is no such thing unless there is repentance. Here is my fifth word of counsel. Keep your eyes on God's forgiveness. Oh, keep your eyes on God's forgiveness. That's the point of the parable. The Lord Jesus has said in response to Peter's question, verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Peter thinks he's pretty impressive. Christ's response, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, just this a lot, right? Because here's the reality, Peter. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. And let me demonstrate it for you by way of a parable, just this illustration that I pray will just come to life. Just trying to make one simple point. You have three men. And you have this master, he has a servant. The servant owes his master 10,000 talents. Understand this, in those days, your average laborer, it would take him 200 years to earn one talent. 
How long would it take him to earn 10,000 talents? What's Christ's point? What's he saying? This debt is infinite. And this is, he's using hyperbole. This, this servant, I don't even know how he incurred such a debt. He's never paying this off. This is way beyond his ability or capacity. This debt is huge. We can't even calculate it. And yet the master is merciful toward him. And then what does that first servant do? He goes out and he finds a second servant who owns him 100 denarii. Owes him 100 denarii. One denarii per day. Sort of your average wages for a laborer back then. So 100 days work. So it's substantive. It is significant. The Lord Jesus isn't dismissing it as trivial. What's his point? His point is this. That first servant tasted of such mercy. Didn't he? He drank from the well of mercy. Ten thousand talents debt up to his ears an absolute impossibility of giving thousands of years to pay it off and his master was merciful to him and then the second servant comes to him and an unwillingness on the part of the first servant to forgive the second servant demonstrating what that he really did not appreciate the magnitude of his master's mercy that's Christ's point. He brings it to a head right at the end of the chapter. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Oh, are you amazed by God's forgiveness, friend? I mean, are you floored, staggered by what it means for God to forgive you? The psalmist cries, is it Psalm 130, 131? If the Lord should mark, count iniquity, O Lord, who can stand? If the Lord, capital letters, it's Yah, Yahweh, the all-knowing, all-seeing, infinite being. If this God who knows all things and sees all things, this God who is infinite in his being, if this God should count iniquity, O Lord, it's Adonai, the supreme judge, so if this God who is all-seeing, all-knowing, and who is the supreme judge of all, if the Lord should count iniquity, your iniquity, friend, who can stand? It's a rhetorical question. What's the expected answer? No one. And then what does the psalmist go on to say? But with you, there is forgiveness. But with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. Are you amazed by God's forgiveness of you? Are you melted, second question, by God's forgiveness of you? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. Does it melt your heart? That leads to the third question, does it not? In our paradigm of progression, are you changed by God's forgiveness? How do you know? How forgiving are you? Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. O wonder of all wonders, that through your death for me, my open sins, my secret sins can all forgiven be. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Bend me. 
Yea, break me down until I own you conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Our Heavenly Father, this is our simple prayer this day that we might stand amazed in your presence and wonder at how you could love us and send your Son, the Lord Jesus, to bear the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross when we but remember the multitude of our sins and how you cast them from your sight, from your presence, because of the death of Jesus Christ. Oh, we do indeed stand and wonder. May it have a transforming effect upon us. May it have an edifying influence in our lives. And we pray it for the good of your people and your eternal glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. While we stand together. Savior, 
as we go uplift uplift us in your strength lord give us your grace to forgive one another lord may we be people that are found in forgiveness and true forgiveness lord we ask this in your precious name amen go in peace